0: One of the tools of musicianship is the ability to lead other musicians. And today we're going to talk about the craft of conducting. Hello and welcome everybody to episode 34 of the Musician Toolkit. My name is David Lane and it is great to be with you once again. Now, if you're new to the podcast, first of all, welcome. Thank you for checking out today's episode. I just want to say up front that uh, I am not a local podcast. I don't cover local events as kind of the theme of the podcast. The purpose of this podcast is about the tools of musicianship. I've labeled 21 in a previous episode. I won't recap them right now, but one of those tools happens to be conducting or leading other musicians and we haven't talked about it before. We're going to talk about it today. But as I said, I'm not really a local podcast. I, I live and I work in Winston-Salem, and I've had some colleagues from this area on this podcast before, but we've talked about musicianship. We haven't really talked about things unique to this area. And uh, some of you listeners that have reached out to me, I know that you live in India, you live in Finland, you live in Ghana, So thank you for listening to this this podcast all over the world and showing an interest in improving your musicianship. Today, we get to cover both of these bases, though. We're going to talk about the craft of conducting, but we're also going to talk about my area, which is Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And the reason that we're doing that is because our local professional symphony, that is the Winston-Salem Symphony Orchestra, after a year of interim conductors, recently voted on who was to be the new music director and conductor of the Winston-Salem Symphony. And her name is Michelle Merrill, and she has the honor of not only being the first female conductor of the Winston-Salem Symphony, but also the only woman to lead a professional orchestra in the Carolinas. Now, why this honor is being achieved in the year 2023 is probably a different subject for a different podcast episode. We won't get into that today, but better late than never. At any rate, I reached out to Michelle to be a guest on this podcast right after she was announced, and she and the Winston-Salem Symphony have graciously agreed to give her time to talk to me today because, first of all, I wanted to chat and give an introduction of what it's like to be a conductor. And we talk about some of the tools that you need. We talk about score study, rehearsal preparation. We also talk about some of the gestures and how it needs to fit the the physicality of who you are as an individual. We talk about her time when she was the associate conductor of the Detroit Symphony, working with the esteemed maestro, who doesn't actually like to be called maestro, he's that kind of person, but Leonard Slatkin. But we also talk about her vision with the Winston-Salem Symphony and how she plans to use her skills and experience over the next several years with the Winston-Salem community, and also what she's most excited about for the 2023-24 season. By the way, if you live in Winston-Salem or if you're thinking about making a trip to Winston-Salem, single tickets are now on sale at wssymphony.org. So if you're local, this interview is going to be a great way for you to get to know your new artistic director as a person. So I'm excited for that. But if you're not local and you don't plan on coming to Winston-Salem, this is also a great introduction to conducting as a craft and might help you if you're thinking about doing this either as part of what you do or as a career. So without further delay, here is my conversation with Michelle Merrill. So it's my pleasure today to be talking to Michelle Merrill, the latest conductor of the Winston-Salem Symphony Orchestra. Michelle, uh, thanks for joining me today, and welcome to the Musician Toolkit. Yeah,
1: thank you, David. Great to be here.
0: Uh, So I want to start off before we get into anything about you know, you, you as a musician or what you're going to be doing with the symphony. So I want to talk about a few things that, uh, that I know we have in common. Actually, it's one specific thing, and that is living in Jacksonville. So I am a graduate of JU. And, oh,
1: really? Oh, wow.
0: And I think I would imagine, because I, I looked and I noticed that your husband is a... Uh, is or was the principal percussionist for the
1: principal percussionist there, I believe going into his 13th season about to start in the fall. Okay. Uh, yes. We've been Jacksonville. I, I don't know about natives, but we've been living in Jacksonville for the past over a decade.
0: Okay. So, uh, well, our times don't overlap. Then I, 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 left in 97, you know, but a lot of the people I know are still with the symphony. So uh, I was told, uh when I mentioned that you were coming on the podcast, my, A friend and former teacher, Tony Steve...
1: Oh, Tony's so wonderful, and he plays in my orchestra, uh, the Coastal Symphony of Georgia, my other orchestra right. that I have that's about an hour north of Jacksonville. No, he's so wonderful. Well, he's... And my husband's name is Steve, so we always joke, it's Tony Steve Merrill. Nice. we'll get to combine, too. <laughs> uh,
0: he's, a, he's a past guest in my other podcast, Life in the Pit, and, uh, you know, I'm hopefully not spoiling too much. He's going to be a future guest on this podcast at some oh, point. Okay. <laughs> um, but I also, I took percussion lessons for a semester with Ken Every
1: oh ken's so wonderful too just yeah. a really dear friend of ours he's actually no i don't think he is this time but we'll we'll go back and forth watching each other's cats when we're uh, right. out of town we'll watch our cat we'll watch his cat sometimes
0: um there are a couple of other names that i know uh i haven't talked to in a long time but uh the principal tubus used to be james jenkins i don't know if he's. Oh, it he's still, still is oh, yes yeah, yeah. Jenkins
1: is uh, fantastic and it also plays with with my other orchestra down in georgia and we're actually looking to possibly do some some more things with him, maybe a concerto being commissioned for him to play.
0: Okay. I did compose some pieces for him and Ken Every. Really? Back right when I graduated, but it was one of those he... I, I think he asked for more than he was expecting, because he, he said, all right, here's my low note, here's my high note, write whatever you want in between. He wanted it challenging. And uh, I wasn't a very good judge of how hard my music was back then. And so <laughs> I think I contacted him a year later, and he's like, well, I, I, I think I've just about got down one of them. <laughs> it was a seven <laughs> seven <laughs> movement suite. So I don't know if he ever did more with it or not. I need to probably check in. Uh, and then uh, I Used to play French horn, and it was my third instrument in college. I did take a semester, at least one semester, with Aaron Brask, who was, oh nice,
1: uh, very nice, yeah. yeah Aaron's so. great. He's still playing third horn with the Jacksonville Symphony, and then is currently sitting principal with the Coastal Symphony as well. So. Yeah,
0: he he has. Uh, I mean, this goes back to the '90s. He he has a, a Christmas album. He's probably really? done more since then. It was like music for the holiday season, and oh, nice. you'll you'll there. Like, there's a lot of tracks. Like the average track is about fifty seconds long, maybe a minute. Sure. It's just like little yeah. little excerpts of Christmas pieces. Um, hmm. And he works with whoever the the uh, principal harpist was at the time. I don't remember. She was uh, she was a Japanese Hi, woman. Kyo.
1: Oh, Ka- probably was Kayo. She's still there too. That
0: sounds that sounds right. So some of the yeah. so the ones that he did with her are very serious, and yeah. then the other ones that he did uh, are very comical. It's like sounds like Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> he's got both sides for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's got. Uh, what, was it Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? He's got like the pitch bends with the mute going in and yeah. out and everything, and he it goes so slow. He takes a big rest and he does a big yawn in the middle of it and he keeps on going oh <laughs> i'm gonna have to
1: find this that's yeah, funny
0: i have i have a cd somewhere but uh, uh you know in another room but it's uh yeah he he was he's quite funny it's like i used to get entertained when i have when i'd have to call his answering machine you know to inquire about you know makeup lesson or something like that sure. and, and his you never knew what to expect with his outgoing yeah, yeah. messages. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But uh, yeah, um, the Jacksonville Symphony Orchestra was a huge influence because there was a time when I was in college that they were not, uh, well, their hall was being renovated. I don't, I don't. Oh, it sure. Was, so Jacoby
1: it, probably wasn't there. when. No,
0: was it there. was yeah. maybe being built and they used to play in the Florida theater uh-huh, and uh-huh. and so forth but they needed a place to rehearse. So they happened to choose Terry concert hall at, at J U. And mm-hmm. uh, if you were a student there, you were allowed to go observe rehearsal and we could, oh, I could go cool. into the balcony and uh, the maestro at the time was Roger Nirenberg. Mm-hmm. And um, I just learned so much just watching him interact. And, and it was a uh, still my favorite concert. I think I've, I, I've seen an orchestra that he did it, the first half was like all featured the sections it's like it started off with the fanfare liturgique by Henri thomas for brass and percussion and then it did um one of the i feel like it was a brahms serenade or no it was a richard strauss serenade it was one of his like smaller pieces for winds and he did um oh gosh what did he do for what was for strings i'm blanking on that one i can't remember what the string piece was but then that was all act one and then act two was the enigma variations of elgar oh, so nice. it was yeah. a, uh it was just you know r- really incredible uh concert and i just loved uh watching them put that together so that so many fun memories so i just wanted to connect you know just talking about jacksonville yeah. s- small s- world yes <laughs> um I, i'm gonna go a little non-linear i'd like to talk a little bit about leonard slack and this is a bit of serendipity, but, uh, I just happen to be reading this book at the moment. So yes. this is Conducting Business, yep. unveiling the mystery behind the maestro, Leonard Slack. And now I noticed he wrote this in 2012. So there's no chance that he's talking about you.
1: No, none of me in that. No. <laughs> no,
0: no, no calling out or name calling in, in this book. <laughs> That's a great um, one, so. But, uh, you know, I'm only about 60 pages into it, but I like that he's thought very much about the craft of being a conductor and you said that was kind of the point of the book and um i'm really looking forward to the third section where he goes into scores and talks about problems and so forth but what was it like being the you were the associate conductor of the of the detroit symphony from 2014 to 2018 what did you learn about the about conducting specifically from leonard
1: oh a huge amount and not just about conducting but also about just being a music director, because he's just a storied and famed music director, having led St. Louis, also National, Detroit. Um, Actually, I I guess I hold the claim to fame of being his last assistant slash later associate Mm -hmm. conductor that he's ever had, because he's since retired from being a music director, although he's still doing lots of guest conducting. But with Leonard from the very beginning, and if you've ever seen, there's some comical pictures of the two of us when he's first interviewing me, you know, for a a Facebook post or something at the beginning of my tenure there, where he's very short, and I'm very tall. Mm -hmm. And there's also some New Year's Eve, where they, we were on camera, and they said, Oh, you can stand on a box. And he said, I'm not standing on a box. Mm -hmm. And so these comical images of the differences in our stature. And I only say that to mention that I remember very specifically one time him talking about the gestures that a conductor uses. And he said, you know, it's it's fine to watch conductors and see what they're doing, but you should never try to copy anyone because we're all built so incredibly different. You know, you're tall, I'm short, some people are wide, some people are thin, some people um, have masculine features, some people have feminine features. You should use what you have and figure out your style. And I just found that very poignant because, if you are just trying to copy say carlos Cliver you're never going to succeed because it will always be a copy and it will be a bad copy most likely but if you're toning into what you can do gesturally to create the soundscape it might be a completely different gesture than what leonard would do you know he can have hands out like this and it looks incredible if i do that it better be the most huge moment in the Strauss score, a Mahler score for it to require that, or else I just look giant on the stage. And so I found that really telling that he was so focused on, you know, looking inward to what you are and your voice. He also talked to me about that because Leonard's such a gifted speaker. You can tell that in his book writing, but also just to the audience, he was never one to be stuffy at all. Mm -hmm. He actually refused to be called maestro he wanted everyone to call him leonard and i found that very telling as well and he wanted to be able to communicate to the audience what the music was about even if it was a new piece of music um even if it was something they might be familiar with but didn't know a particular story and He would always tell me when I first came on in Detroit, I was doing a lot of education concerts. We had just gotten a grant to do uh, education webcast. And he said, whatever you do, if there's a script that you haven't written, make sure you still put it in your voice so that it is always authentically you and you're the one that's communicating rather than doing someone else's words. And that, among numerous other things, are the thing the kind of the two main Aspects, just gesturally conducting, making sure your physicality is really representing you and the music coming through you. And just as a person, making sure your voice is always being heard and you're not trying to do a a copycat of something else.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the height difference. You know, uh, I haven't met you in person yet. And, um, and I, well, I haven't met Leonard Slacken in person either. But uh, one of the things when I took a conducting course, I was told, you know, one of the questions that a lot of people ask is, well, how, how high should I hold the baton when I'm conducting? And I was, I'm a, you know, I, I don't think I'm short, but I'm, I'm probably a little below average. And I was told that I should probably hold it higher than, hmm. you know, someone who is maybe over six feet. You know, they should probably hold a little bit lower. And just Mm -hmm. kind of finding that eye level, because you know, you know, you're on a podium. Most of your musicians are below you, (laughs) you know, height wise, and you don't want them like their eye angle shouldn't be super high when they're trying to conduct, connect with you and your baton, you know. So, but for me, it was like my if if I'm too low, I'm dropping below the stand level and so forth. And I, I even had I conducted Oklahoma um, from the pit one time. And I used to have this nightmare and it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I guess, uh, the, I went down with the downbeat and on, it was, you know, Oklahoma has a bunch of two, four, you know, so it's it's all down, up, down, up. And on the upbeat, the tip caught the bottom of the stand and it flew out. (laughs) We had a very, uh, we had a percussionist, uh, that saw it all happen. And he, without a blink, he just handed over a drumstick and I conducted the rest of that
1: Uh, scene with the drumstick and then i
0: was able to finally go get the baton but that was (laughs) uh, that was one of those things like i yeah be careful what you dream about because it could happen good or bad yeah exactly
1: exactly um
0: yeah you know the funny thing about leonard slatkin is first time i saw a photo of him it was on i have a cd set of him doing all of the Rayvon williams symphonies and uh, mm. when i first saw his photo i thought doesn't look like a conductor looks more like a baptist deacon <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know he probably
1: find his, that hilarious. yeah it's like his,
0: it, was, it was just the type of suit he was wearing and you know i guess sure. his hair and, and all that and it was just it, it he just kind of looked look that part but uh you know you can tell by listening obviously he's a fine musician but i, I would recommend by the way anybody interested in conducting uh, i mean at least the first 60 pages of this book by leonard L- and it's a very good uh he had quite a childhood all of his family were professional musicians but he grew up in la at a time when like stravinsky and john williams and uh, you know, the Newman family and all of these people in, in Hollywood that are concert and film composers and performers are coming through the door. and, <laughs> and Well, and also
1: people like Frank Sinatra oh yeah. and other members of the Rat, but he just was around that type of music. Oh, and yeah. actually with Leonard, he's so great at all different English music, French music. He's really great at it. Well, but he's always been such a champion of American music. Mm-hmm. Having grown up here, he felt that, that it was almost his duty to make sure that American composers weren't lost. And I always appreciated that as well. He introduced me into Walter Piston I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And Walter Piston's Ballet Suite from The Incredible Flutist is now one of my favorite pieces to do. But aside from that, he's got a really brilliant mind for programming. And it, I remember one concert, he was doing a bop transcriptions on the first half. And then Michelle Camillo and his trio came and did a uh, a triple concerto but for jazz trio and orchestra mm. but people would be like bach and that and he was like bach was the first true improviser or first kind of well-known improviser maybe not in a jazz style but in in his own style and so actually the pairing worked beautifully and it was just he had a very creative mind like he actually has a cd of uh, pictures in an exhibition but it's taking it not just from the Ravel edition but from Tushmalov and and other People's arrangements of the Mussorgsky, and it's really fascinating kind of to to look at at his different CDs, but also programs throughout the year to see the way he would try to pair pieces together.
0: Well, that's wonderful. I I I know if we were gonna if you're gonna take like a long form, two hour, we we could talk more about (laughs) Leonard. But I'm (laughs) I'm going to bring it back to you now. So I want to go well back in time. Let's go to. You know, you don't have to go from the very beginnings of music, but like, what what was your first type of experience with music? And to the point to where you, you knew that this was something you wanted to do professionally, and what led you to choosing conducting as a career?
1: Sure. Well, I grew up in a very tiny town in East Texas named Canton, Texas. I had about 100 people in my class that I still know, many that I went from kindergarten through Graduation with. And really, my first introduction to music was probably just in the church, you know, just singing hymns, watching the choristers sing, having piano. I actually started taking piano. And I've told this story many times just because of. uh a trick-or-treating journey where somebody was handing out their business card attached to their candy bars and i started playing piano and never had to be told to practice i loved it from the get-go uh i was a saxophone major in college because i started playing saxophone because my sister that's what she played and i was that's what i'm gonna play i want to be just like her i didn't know i was going to grow up to be an orchestral conductor for those listeners that are listening that might not know there's not hardly any saxophone in orchestral rep right. we've got some of the great big pieces and some great moments and pieces but uh not it's not a standard instrument like your violin or your clarinet or oboe or something like that with the knowing that i wanted to do music though that that happened in high school i was in band in texas and m- football is king, which means marching band, I guess, is queen. So I was a drum major for two years. And sometimes when the teachers would leave, I would actually just run the class in the spring season of doing concert music. And I got my first taste of conducting there and also was a member of the all-state Ensemble, where all kind of the top level musicians in the state would go down for a weekend and rehearse together and then perform at a concert. And I remember telling my parents then, gosh, I could do this every day. And they're like, are you sure? I think you might get sick of just doing rehearsals all the time. And I was like, no, no, this is, this is what I want to do. And I was so lucky that they never discouraged me from anything like that. And that brought me to SMU where I was a double major in music education and performance, started taking conducting lessons there, had some opportunities to again, do some conducting, met my husband there as a percussion student and we were married and he went to we went to Boston where he was getting his degree and that further solidified my desire to want to do conducting because we were right down the street from Symphony Hall in Boston and went out to Tanglewood when he was a fellow one summer and was seeing kind of just that world and knew that I wanted to get into that orchestral framework so once he was done with his master's degree I got to get my master's degree and wanted to study with the symphony conductor that was back at our alma mater that we had done our undergraduate at and through that was able to kind of go and watch dallas symphony rehearsal similar to you going to watch jacksonville symphony i would i don't encourage students to do this but i would skip class sometimes <laughs> to go and just watch rehearsal because it was just so fascinating and so enlightening to me and right out of college i got my first job i won my first job as the apprentice conductor in the Northeastern Pennsylvania Philharmonic and very small regional orchestra with Lawrence Lowe, Larry Lowe, who was the music director at the time. And he knew Leonard because of Pittsburgh and a kind of a Pittsburgh relationship. And when Leonard's uh, the assistant conductor left in Detroit, he actually put my name in for that. And so it kind of just... I always tell people there's always kind of a set path for orchestral musicians. You see the audition, you go take the audition, you either win the audition or you don't for conductors. It's a little bit, yes, there are auditions to be had, but you have to, it's not a blind audition. People know who you are. They recommend you to go even to be in this audition. And so no one really ever takes the same path, but I felt extremely lucky that I um, have had the career that I've had and uh, kind of starting with, from very humble beginnings, I guess I would say.
0: Well, uh, and congratulations for your journey to this point. And, uh, you know, just one thing, one takeaway I would take from that is kind of similar to if, uh, if you want to be a professional composer, you know, networking is so important. I mean, she I think it's, imp- I think it's important in everything, but I guess it's, it's possible to get a really good job in a blind audition, you know, as a performer, if you Don't really know that many people, but it's very hard as a conductor composer without taking the time to network. So,
1: and just being kind too. I think it's about it's about networking, but doing favors not altruistically, doing it altruistically. You know, just as because we want to be able to make music together and help each other, and you know, hopefully karma will work in your favor one day, and hope somebody will want to help you as well. But I think it's really To me, it is about the networking, but again, being your true self and and wanting to collaborate and make music. And there's a composer actually whose piece we're going to be doing this next year in the Winston-Salem Symphony calendar, Jared Miller, who just happened to just get the job as the new kind of composition professor at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, how serendipitous is that, that I already was wanting to do a piece by his that I've done a couple of times. But now we have this kind of relationship with the students as well. And hopefully some of his students will come to see his piece be performed
0: excellent um i'm gonna i'm gonna ask a very basic question that i think you know because not i I, I, well actually i do know that not everybody who listens to this podcast is a musician so what is the importance of a conductor and I'll, i'll frame the context of that Um, obviously we know what the importance of a conductor is in, in middle school and high school, you know, when students need to learn rhythm, but anybody in professional orchestra knows basic rhythm. Um, there, there's actually a time, you know, that the concert master was the conductor, you know, a few centuries ago. Uh, so what is it the conductor offers to the orchestra that might be difficult to achieve without the conductor?
1: Sure. Well... One, just kind of a unified vision of mm-hmm. how a piece should go, especially, say, when you start getting to the larger setups, anything beyond really even Mozart, you have, you have 50, 60 people on stage. And sometimes when I'm in groups of people, I try to say everybody say da at the same time with no indication of when to do it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do a OK, now say die and I'll give like a little prep beat. And they, it it kind of is like, oh, so one really to show where the time is there. You're hoping that everyone's coming with their rhythm and their notes already known. of course. It's, It's very different than middle school and high school. I think people are shocked to find out that normally for say a classical program, there's only four times that the orchestra meets as a whole and really puts it all together in that amount of time, but it's because everyone's a professional. But for the conductor, you're right in the middle, you're guiding the flow of the piece, but you're also guiding the interpretation. 80%, maybe even as much as 90% of my job is spent in a room alone with the music pouring over the score, which has everyone's parts in it, so that I can see how things fit together, so I can think about parts that I would like to come out, or I think the composer wants to highlight, say the viola section here, or maybe that tiny little clarinet two note that needs to come out. And those are things that I'm, things that I'm working in rehearsal to bring out in the music. it's also sometimes about the violins can't hear the percussion and maybe they don't even know that they have a part together and just pointing that out so that they can listen back and hear that. Or, hey, let's take that moment one more time in the brass just so we can work on kind of the unified sound and the balance. And that's really, again, the conductor's main job is using their ears to hear the formulation of the music coming together. And like a chef, you know, adjusting the spice level, adding more salt, uh, adding more water, that's kind of my job as well, or a conductor's job, is to make sure that the finished product comes out as beautiful as possible
0: nice uh i did want to ask you some questions about like preparing a score before rehearsals begin and and i decided so i i was in atlanta when you when you uh conducted this recent concert that included uh the planets by by gustav holz so i wasn't able to see that but i have to bring it up because this is almost an inside joke with my regular listeners i haven't intended it more than once but somehow the planet specifically Mars pops up on this podcast all the time. I think this is the (laughs) fifth or the sixth time in what will be, I think 34 episodes (laughs) (laughs) that it's come up and even came up in a, an episode that I did about heavy metal, uh, because the blacks, the song black Sabbath from the first black Sabbath album was inspired by the G D flat tritone in Mars that they were listening to at the time. (laughs) So, (laughs) so yeah, it just pops up so much. So, um, if you're, if you're looking at the plans and we we'll, you know, just for sake of time, we'll take Mars. What are decisions that you're making in advance and how are you, how are you preparing your score to be most efficient in rehearsal so you know what you're listening for?
1: Sure. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is really kind of look at the in that the movement as a whole. And then I start thinking about phrases, meaning like um, like if you do Mary had a little Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. That's one phrase. And then Mary had a little lamb, as white as snow. That would be your next phrase, you know, just Mary. That's not any, that's just like a little measure, let's say, or a, or a note or a motive. But I'm trying to see it in phrase links because for me, getting from one phrase to the next and how the music flows within that phrase is what's most important. So I'll go through, I'll mark all my phrase markings very clearly so I can kind of see the demarcation between one phrase and the next. Then I am here, not to bring it back to Leonard, but is where I'm completely different than him. He rarely puts any marking in his score. And Mm -hmm. he just has that mind that maybe doesn't need to do that or just sees it all as he needs to. For me, the act of marking actually, one, helps me internalize it, but two, just helps me see it more clearly on the score. When I wish I had one with me that I've recently marked up, but I'll go through and put, you know, red markings for any, if anything that's really loud or say a crescendo or blue markings for something that's getting softer or is a very soft, delicate moment. Green for me is always time. So in Mars, it's all in five, four, sometimes in five, two. So I'm having to show myself those adjustments. Yellow for whatever reason, maybe because of symbols and kind of being gold are always uh, it, are yellow, the yellow, I won't say crayon, yellow pencil, always marks percussion, which in a piece, say like Bruckner seven, where you have one simple note <laughs> really highlights when that symbol note comes out. Um, but, or, or just big moments of percussion, a big crash that you might want to see uh, orange. Sometimes in a score you have uh, a, a whole, bit of music on top, but then the bit of music on the bottom of the page is the continuation of that. So I put a big orange line in between those so I can clearly see. So I do a lot of marking in my scores. Purple is always the entrance of specific lines that I might want to bring out or just notice when I'm reading through it. So I'll go through and do all of that. Uh, If it's a piece that I don't know well or say it's a brand new piece, I'll play through different lines on the piano. I might even use, I'm not that great of a pianist, even though I started on piano, to be able to score read like some people can. So I'll even just take out my garage band, record a line, play it back in my earphones while playing another line, play it back in my earphones while playing if I want to hear, say, a four-part grouping at once to just get the music internalized in my ear. And then once I've done all of that and kind of gotten to know the different parts I'll just spend time going through kind of like reading a book and just look at it. And sometimes I think about it very slowly. Sometimes I'll go through it at tempo. Sometimes I'll take individual, you know, maybe two phrases at a time and just review that. Uh, think about, you know, the conducting of it. With Mars, it is uh, a little trepidatious in that it is 5-4 and it's a not normal. We're normally conducting in 4 or conducting in 3 or conducting in 2. 5-4 has just a little bit of a hiccup in it. Um that you don't want to get caught off on and sometimes within the five four measures it's actually more like a ten four measure but you have to spread it over the two measures so there's a little bit of kind of turning it on ends that that gets a little wonky
0: right um and and you know I've funny thing about the planets is uh, you know I've heard it go really slow in the beginning that like, yada yeah, da, da dun, dum bum bum bum. Uh, I think uh, you know the took me a while to get used to like it was john elliott gardner's version that's it's what i love about it is e- everything is just so crisp you know nice. the rhythm just pops but it's by far the slowest i've ever heard that you know that movement played <laughs> sure. whereas if you hear like there are recordings of Gustav Holtz conducting himself and he all he all he must be doing it in an uneven two because it's it's just I'm somewhere in the middle I'll start it in five and then kind of go into a two plus three or something
1: right
0: (laughs) Uh, I did want to remind just uh listeners especially by the way if you're listening to this podcast for the first time thank you so much uh I would have if, you, if you're if you interested in conducting, I would go back to listen to uh, – it was episode 16 that came out on April 10th called The Benefits of Score Study, and that's where we talked uh, – one of the things we talked about is what a score looks like, you know, when you're looking at an orchestral score and, you know, just where the woodwinds are and the brass. So, you know, uh, we, rather than repeat that here, I would just say go, go to there for those kind of details. Uh, but I did have a question about conducting, you know, so every – all musicians practice – uh you know you do your score prep but do you do you practice do you do you wave your baton while you're either with garage band or you know in your mind kind of going through the score just kind of imagining where the instrumentalists are and how you have to cue
1: i used to do this a lot when i was kind of in my formative years (laughs) getting with conducting i rarely do that say if I'm doing with garage band, if I'm doing that, I'm mainly just trying to internalize the music and not worrying about the physical part of it, then I would do that these days, kind of in that book reading time. Once I've gotten the score internalized and I'm going through, I might kind of just casually, especially with a piece like that, where I'm just trying to get the muscle memory of five, or say there's something in 12, you know, 12 where you've got this one, two, three, four, five, six, just to make sure I'm moving at the right, right. times. And then I still will, to this day, almost do just like a, a, a person on their instrument might do long tones or scale passages. Those aren't things that are going to be playing in concert, but they're great for muscle building. I'll sometimes, you know, just go and do these old exercises I used to do when I was in college of just seeing. Seeing what it looks like when I do something very smooth. What if I do that same pattern, a little choppy? What if I do that same pattern really big? What if I do that same pattern very small? Just kind of add to my bag of tricks. Or you know, practicing, if I'm just doing a a very basic pattern, what can I do with my left hand? Maybe I want to make it seem very flowery. Maybe I want to see it very intense. So I'll, I'll kind of play around with that, not as much as I did when I was growing up, because I, I have a little bit of a bag of tricks now, um, that I can, I will say, I don't try to plan out various gestures. I, I do that in a separate mode from looking at the score, and hopefully, and it does, if you've done enough work with it, it translates into what you're feeling in the moment for the music to come out.
0: Well, excellent. Excellent. What does a rehearsal schedule look like with you when you're planning a rehearsal? Do you do it by the minute for certain pieces or are you flexible? How do like how, what kind of time are you allotting as you go within a rehearsal?
1: Sure, I generally that's it that kind of dependent on the piece Mm -hmm. and also dependent upon how it's going Uh in terms of maybe I'm running through something and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, this is this needs more work than I thought it did. Then I might come back to the next rehearsal with a very specific At this time, I have to move on to this. At this time, I have to move on to this. That's actually happened back in May when I was doing my audition week with the Winston-Salem Symphony, partly because we were, yes, doing Holst the Planets, but that, which is normally the big piece, was on the first half of the program. Yeah. (laughs) and on the second half of the program was William Walton's Belshazzar's Feast which is another huge piece but one that's not well known and it also involves chorus, uh, baritone soloists and so we started out actually with the Walton and I I like to do kind of a full run I generally do this with symphonies too try to get just everyone's kind of figuring it out they're getting used to me, I'm getting used to them we're getting used to the piece we want to get big picture and through that I didn't get nearly as much done in that first rehearsal. And so I went back and thought, I gotta, I gotta piecemeal this much more tight. And a lot of times, and even with you know, the Berlin Philharmonic, you don't necessarily get done what you want to get done in the time. There's always gonna be things that no conductor ever says like, I got it perfect, you know, and and that's not even what music is about. Music is alive. It's always doing these different things. So I would definitely say sometimes I schedule myself by the minute because I know there's particular things I need to get to. Sometimes it is more open and we can delve more into certain passages because we don't have to work on something that's really tricky or hard to put together. It's more, say, in a Mozart symphony, which is, can seem simple in terms of the mechanics of it, actually needs so much in terms of style, so much in terms of exploring color. And if I have time in rehearsal to do that, those are the things I love doing is, oh, what if we just bring out the color right here? If viola is a little bit higher than the the violins, what will that do? And you can even experiment like, let's try this. Oh, I hate that, go back to what you were doing. Or, oh, I love that, let's keep it in and change it. So it's a a yes and no. (laughs) I love to be flexible sometimes for time's sake. Say I just did a concert with the North Carolina Symphony for their Summerfest series this past June. And we had one rehearsal to get through a mountain of music. And in a situation like that, I also kind of time out things of gotta gotta cut your losses and go. not that not that they were sounding bad. It's just you have to be able to move on to the next thing and not delve into, oh, I'd love to be able to work on the nuance of that one little measure. Those are things that you have to to leave when you when you're scrapped for time.
0: Right. When I've worked with theater casts before um they, they they used to kind of have fun with me because I would send out schedules that will say seven o'clock seven o'clock warm-up 705 this piece and then it would say something like 720 two <laughs> we're going to go on to the next piece it was sure, it was very sure. meticulous it was like I, I i had everything kind of timed out and then i was like okay i'll tell you what, i'm just going to round up to the f- next five or, or zero sure. and and so now I, d- I don't do that anymore you know it, but it will sometimes instead of saying seven you'll say seven thirty five, you know or something like okay. that but um, see I,
1: the musicians would never see that that's always just for me if i'm right. timing out things it's only right. for my benefit to see yeah but i know that there were people in the audience that noticed i had a little thing and they were like we noticed you kept checking the time And i was like oh we had a lot to get through i was yeah. making sure we were on schedule
0: well in this situation you know in a in a th- musical not everybody sings in every song so so like part of part of it is designed so that like not everybody's there oh, sitting sure. around yeah. waiting you know and so forth so.
1: <laughs> but I, yeah did I, appreciate that aspect of it <laughs>
0: yeah but if you're doing if you're doing holst and you're doing walton everybody's there all the time playing all the time so.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah walton it was it was such a bombastic setup the stage was huge there's two brass bands on the side that are these mm-hmm. Like left and right brass bands that come in at big moments. We had so many people on stage. It was really kind of thrilling.
0: <laughs> I do have to ask, how did you do the fade out in Neptune with the chorus? I've heard sometimes that there's a door open and you just close the door. <laughs> yeah, so
1: we actually we experimented. We ha- I had the singer stay one night a little later so we could just practice this and see different Points. What we ended up doing for this, I originally wanted them to go down the stairs, but you could hear their footsteps. And Mm -hmm. it was kind of because they were having to go downstairs, it was affecting the quality of voice. So we did end up having the door open, it would gradually shut. And then I had them turn around. And then they kind of cut their voices while going, while kind of bending over, so it just very magically faded away. Nice. Other times where I've done this, if it's possible, if it's possible, and there's just a long hallway, I've just had the singers walk away and, and not have any shoes on, like wear socks or something, so you can't see it, and it's just a magical kind of fade away. But it's that's that's always fun to experiment with in the different halls. Is how you do the the Neptune moment. <laughs>
0: nice Uh, i mean there's so many things we can talk about for for the sake of time i want to leave time for you to talk about um you know being the conductor for the winston-salem symphony i think i mentioned it but you're uh i believe you're you're the first woman to to hold this post and so congratulations on that generally what is your vision you know what do you you know if you're here for you know hopefully five years or more if you're here for five years or more what do you see what what is your vision for the winston-salem symphony
1: Sure. Well, basically, their whole mission, even before I got here, was bringing music to life. Mm -hmm. And to me, that aligns with what I see in terms of wanting to get music into the ears and to the lives of really everyone in the community. Because what I see is I don't know a single individual that doesn't listen to music. And I'm not saying classical music, I mean music, Mm -hmm. but music is this universal language. And I think people think they don't like classical music. They might be like, oh, that's not, I don't like that type of music, but they don't realize that it's all around them. Commercials, films. I've been using this just because it was a recent uh, show Succession is full of references to Beethoven, references to Mozart, in the score, it's string quartets, it's piano. There is so much classically embedded music into the general popular world. And I think once people realize that and hear it in that context, they can be ignited to want to hear more. Even Mars, even the planets, as you mentioned, is so aligned with Star Wars, Mars could be Darth Vader, Neptune's like Yoda, Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 Uranus is like Han Solo, you know, the magician, the prankster. There are so many things that are related back to these classical masterpieces. And so it's really my vision to, there's a Symphony Unbound series here, which is kind of taking the music, say the most recent one they did is they had a double string quartet, in the coal pit in Winston-Salem playing the music of Led Zeppelin, Metallica, Coldplay. And people were like, wait, I know that music I've never heard it done this way. How cool is that? I'm outdoors drinking uh a, you know a beer, having fun with my friends, and but I'm getting to hear this music in a way I didn't know. I didn't realize that a string orchestra could sound like that. And it's like, yes. And not only that, but why don't you come check out Leonard Bernstein's, you know, symphonic dances from West side story. And you're going to get to hear lots of jazz influence. We have, uh, Edgar Meyer coming this year he's going to do his concerto for bass and I love that there's that almost kind of folksy connection because so much of this region in North Carolina has kind of that uh, the bluegrass background the folk connection and I want to meet people where they are and get them to realize music is music is music and if we can embrace kind of this different style if we can see these crossover styles that it really can bring us all together as a community.
0: Great. So now, 2023 to 2024 season, what are you most excited about for the Winston-Salem Symphony?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, it's really just everything. I was very serendipitous that it worked out that I could do all the classical programs. I actually had a very low guest conducting schedule. And so I was able to work out where I could do all the classical concerts and most of the Pops concerts. So I'm really excited really for every single program coming up. But the first program in particular is doing the Brahms Violin Concerto and Bernstein Symphonic Dances from West Side Story. We're also kicking it off with Carnival by Dvorak, which is just a really fun piece that I love to do. Later in the year, I mentioned we had Edgar Meyer coming. Also, as a saxophonist, I'm really thrilled that Joe Lovano is coming to do his concerto for improvised saxophone and orchestra, which should be really interesting and neat. And then later in the year, we're doing Scheherazade, along with Matthew O'Coin's Suite from his opera Eurydice, which was something that was just premiered at the Met and Winston-Salem Symphony was a co-commissioner in that project, so we're getting to bring it here. Also, uh, just on the pop side of things, I'm really excited that Ricky Skaggs is coming because I remember it as a high schooler hearing his music for the first time out with my niece at, I don't even remember what event it was, but I thought, gosh, what is that sound? And I just was enthralled with it. So this to come full circle and I'll get to be working with him directly is really exciting as well.
0: Well, excellent. We're looking forward to it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a season holder, so I don't get to every concert, but I know I'll make at least one or two and looking forward to, uh, to hearing the work. Uh, last question is where can people, uh, find out more about you or follow you if they choose to?
1: Sure. I'm on Facebook, just my name, but you can also go to my website, just Michelle or Michelle-Merrill.com. And that has links to all my socials with Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is really more of kind of the personal side of my life and pictures. So you'll see some pictures of my two young children and my husband and I, and we love to do some hiking and And that's one thing that's really exciting about this area too is lots of great hiking in north carolina
0: yes yes uh and um you know so just also for if you live local if you're to this area or you're going to be in winston-salem uh single tickets are are now available as of august 1st so you know go go on and check that out And, uh, and I don't know if season tickets are, are closed, but you know, (laughs) go ahead, go ahead and go to the website, see what's available, but you can definitely get single tickets for sure. Uh, so good luck with, uh, well, not just next year, but with your tenure here, uh, with Winston-Salem symphony, we're glad that you're with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Thank you. And that's going to wrap up episode number 34. Once again, if you would like to see Michelle Merrill conduct in person and come to my area, Go check out wssymphony.org where you can find single tickets. Just a few of the usual reminders. First of all, if you enjoyed this episode, no matter where you're listening or even if you're following on YouTube, please share this episode with at least one person who would be interested in this conversation. If you're on YouTube, I would appreciate it if you would click the thumbs up for this video and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would love it if you would leave a five-star rating and review. And if you have a private studio of any kind, whether it's for music or whether it's for yoga or martial arts or really anything where it's you having a one-on-one relationship with a client or even working in small groups, you owe it to yourself to check out the Fonz app, which you can get a free trial by clicking the link in my show notes. You'll find all the ways that they can help you save time in your admin work with your scheduling and with your billing. Once again, that's going to do it for episode number 34. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be back with you again next week.